This is Alexis Dubieff with the Precious Little Sleep Parenting Podcast. We talk a lot about things that we need to do differently in our parenting as it relates to sleep or behavior or mealtime, but we very rarely kind of stop and consider the fact that doing something different means making a change, and change is really scary. There are a lot of changes we're going to face as we move through our parenting journey and a lot of challenges to overcoming the emotional hurdles related to those changes. So today, Elizabeth Nadine is going to take us through a conversation where we talk about those changes and how we can get through them with grace and dignity. Hi, this is Elizabeth, and I'm here today with Alexis and Ashby. We're going to be talking about how having a baby has all kinds of changes wrapped up in it and how to navigate some of those changes. So if you remember, you know, back when you were young and life was easy, you didn't have to make any decisions. That first big decision you made, maybe it was something like buying a car with your own money. You agonized over it for days. You did research. You talked to friends and relatives and you made your purchase. And for most of us, who don't suffer from affluenza, having survived that ordeal unscathed, we thought it was a pretty big deal and we told all our friends what an awesome decision it was. Now you decided to have a baby. There's basically no turning back, so obviously it's become the best decision you've ever made, except, well, it's not, in part because having that baby is followed by seemingly insurmountable hill of more and more decisions to be made. But like with most awesome decisions that we've all made, here at Precious Little Sleep, we think we did a pretty fine job of tackling those decision-making moments and coming through, if not victorious, at least relatively intact, and our babies did too. Today we're going to talk a bit about some of the big transitions and how to set yourself up for making them happen. Now here's the kicker. The only way through something is to take the first step. So I'm going to invite my fellow admins and parents here to join me in reliving some of the first big challenges. In later episodes, we're going to tackle each one at a time with detailed plans. But for now, let's talk about what some of those big changes are and how you know the time has come to make a change. So Ashby, I'm hoping you could tell us a little bit about those early first days. And was there any big decision that you had to make? I think there in terms of what you're doing with the baby, you sort of end up going with the flow in the first couple days. You have no idea what you're doing, so you're really not qualified to make a decision. But I think there is the decision to be made, how much am I going to let expectations of the house go during this initial period, and how much am I going to try to involve my partner as much as possible? I don't really think I did the best at making those decisions the first time around. Um, But I think we're sort of always passively making decisions in the first couple of days of what kind of patterns are we going to set? What kind of habits are we going to set as a family, not necessarily with respect to sleep? I think that that's a really good point that, um, you know, you're so overwhelmed by this new thing in your life that you forget that you're in it with someone else and that the both of you are making decisions at the same time and having that conversation with them is really important. You know, you're like you were saying when you started that, you know, you don't remember, you kind of go with the flow. Um, and I think that's true. You know, they say for the first six to eight weeks that baby is establishing, you know, their night pattern, you're trying to help them do that. Maybe you're going to be up for two hours in the middle of the night. So you have to get up and walk around and you don't want to expect too much of yourself. You're kind of, despite all that sleep depri- depth, 
deprivation, you're letting your brain recover from having a baby, but you have your partner there to do that Mm -hmm. with you. Um, Alexis, I was wondering if maybe you could tell us a bit about the first major change you remember having to make. And how did you know it was time to make a change? Well, so this is going to seem um, kind of funny based on where I am today that this was a challenging change for me. But when my first son was born, you know, I'd read all the books and I thought, okay, he's going to sleep in our sidecar co-sleeper because this is the safe sleep place. And we're going <laughs> to, you know, we're going to establish healthy sleep and we're going to do this whole thing. And, you know, and of course, he it wasn't a matter of, you know, uh, how long he slept. He wouldn't even fall asleep. I mean, he was just wide awake and inconsolable for, you know, 90% of the time. And I was still like resolutely clinging to this whole like, we have to have a schedule. We have to have him in the crib. We have to have him falling asleep independently because I read it in the book. So I was locked in on this, even though we were all of us crumbling under just desperate non-sleeping for the first really months of his life. And um, we had a postpartum doula who really, really encouraged me to embrace the swing. And I was very resistant because I had read all the books and he had to be in the crib. And it was very scary for me. I, I didn't I didn't see how this was going to make things better. I didn't see how we'd get out of it. I thought this was a, a, an unhealthy uh, choice for our family. And I really had to be pushed into it. And of course, you know, now I'm like this big swing advocate because I'm like, yeah, don't don't be rigid about this stuff. Go with what works. And it did work so much better and it was a great decision, but I was really hesitant. So, how did you make the decision to finally implement it? What took you so long and then once you made that change, like how did you feel about it? What was the outcome? Well, I uh desperation, Elizabeth, is the key. <laughs> when, when things are so bad, you get to the point where you're like, I will do anything to make this better. I mean, we joke about like live chicken sacrifices in the backyard. But if somebody th- told me that would make it better, I was I, there, like there was nothing I wouldn't have done because that's how bad it was. So I think I, ideally you, you don't want to make decisions from desperation, but that's where we were, just desperate misery. <laughs> um, and I was resistant for a long time. Like I would, I, I was doing it, but this is, you know, a little while, like nobody, I didn't know anyone whose infants were sleeping in swings. I felt really conflicted about it. I was, I was shy to bring it up with our pediatrician. I thought I was doing something wrong. So it really just took time for me to accept that, Hey, this is, this is working. Okay. Uh, and sort of evidence, oh, he's fine and he's sleeping better and we're sleeping better and he's crying less. So this is great. But it, it was not a smooth process. So part of my goal is to help others avoid my fate. <laughs> so you would say there was a happy mm-hmm. resolution to that I would say there's a happy choice. resolution and I was an idiot to fight it for so long. <laughs> Ashby, what do you think of as um, what, when you looking back toward the post-infancy stage, what do you consider to be one of the first major changes that you had to make? Well, with your child, I mean. Well, with respect to sleep, I would say it was realizing that uh, not every, he wouldn't be hungry every two hours at night or that that wasn't a necessary pattern to continue. You know, when they're really little, you're always worrying, oh, well, you know, it has been two hours. And then as soon as you know it, you have a 10-month-old who really biologically is capable of a long fast at that point. And um, that fear that, oh, he's still hungry, he's still hungry, overcoming that is a big change. 
Do you feel like that came before for you? Did that come before the whole he's got to fall asleep independently for you? It was like he doesn't really need to be eating every two hours at night anymore. Or was it during the day? Oh, I would say even during the day, I mean, not every two hours so much, but when he was first born, I very much bought into the, you know, more boob, the better mantra. And so I was constantly plugging him in and then he would lose interest. And it took me a bit to realize it wasn't because I had a unattached child. It was because he simply didn't need to be suckling constantly like they do as newborns. So, but that point about the, the voice of, but maybe he's hungry, that is a loud and a dominant voice. And I find people like, it's really hard. Like he might be hungry. What yes. if he, like, how do you tone that down or make it, you know, into at two in the morning? How do you not listen to that? I think that eventually once your child is old enough, I mean, two in the morning feed will be appropriate for a lot of younger babies. Once they're older, to me, it was, he's not going to have a blood sugar crisis at this point. And it's actually okay if a child experiences some hunger. And it's all right if they wake up, you know, as a toddler or, young, or older baby, if they wake up super hungry, ready to have a big meal, whether that's breast milk or solid food, that, that's really okay for them to experience some hunger. It's not quite the crisis it was as a newborn. So for you, it was a logical decision. You logically came to the conclusion that he wasn't going into sugar shock due to starvation. <laughs> I, well, you put it very uh, complimentarily there. Uh, I'd like to think it was somewhat logical. So I have to say, uh, this brings up to mind um, this whole notion of mother's intuition. And people will tell you all the time, listen to your gut, listen to your instinct. You're the mom, you know what you're doing. And I have to say, like, I don't think I had that. So whether it's become because I'm a scientist or I don't know what it might be, I needed a rule book. I felt like I needed to follow a rule book. You know, there were certain moments, sure, you know, when it's like baby's been sleeping like crap for nights in a row, you know, when it didn't used to be like that when I realized, okay, they're probably sick, you know, we need to go to the pediatrician. But other than that, when it came to that whole, you can tell the difference between a hungry cry and a tired cry, mm. forget it. All crying sounded no. the same to me. Yeah, but I think you're here. right. You know, you basically, you go along with something until it's not working anymore. Like it used to work to stick your boob in your baby's mouth every time they cried because you're like, okay, they're hungry. You know, we'll eliminate that. But that's not working anymore. So you make a change. And the change, Ashby, it sounds like you made was recognizing that you could go longer intervals between feeding. Mm -hmm. Can we can we go back to the mother's intuition thing? And I, I think part mm -hmm. of the reason we connect is that we are all sort of like logical, sort of more intellectual thinkers than emotional thinkers. And I don't feel like I have good mother's instinct either. And um, this issue comes up a lot, the trust your instinct. And part of what I struggle with is I think, I mean, we know the statistics for for postpartum depression, but there's this strong sense yes. that it's underreported because there's so many people going undiagnosed. And I suspect that's even more so for anxiety. And I struggle because I think that the mm -hmm. voice of anxiety sounds like intuition, but lies to yes. you. And when you're Absolutely. in it, how do you, like, it's very hard to suss out, like, well, wait, is this a legitimate gut instinct that I should be listening to? Or is this anxiety that's giving me bad advice? Because I find that anxiety tells you, Maybe he's sick. Maybe he's going to spike a fever. Maybe he's hungry. Maybe, you know, like anxiety is not giving you the good guidance, but it's so hard to shut it out. And I yeah, think so, you know, 
Go ahead. Oh, I think the only way to really differentiate those two is, you know, contact with other people. And a lot of uh, mothers are so isolated in those first couple of months that I think they don't have that voice of reason who is somebody that's not going through it at that point. I mean, my mother was here for a couple of weeks and if she gave me some idea of normalcy that I wasn't able to see at the time. I think mm-hmm. that's crucial, whether it's a book or a family member or community. I agree. I think you get the sense, um, well, you know, if you're asking for advice from a, a lot of different people, like I did, you get a sense of what you think you're capable of working with. So for example, with the sleep thing, you know, I had a friend who recommended to me uh, the gentle night weaning method or something. I've not, do you remember the name of that? The sort of, anyway, there's this idea. Dr. J. Gordon's method. No, I think it was a woman, but anyway, apparently no cry sleep solution. Yes, that's what it is. You know, you have your baby at the breast, they fall asleep, you remove your nipple, they wake up and then you just keep doing it over and over and over again. Until you get mastitis. (laughs) You know, I was thinking to myself, there's no way in hell that I can do this. I'm not capable of doing this. So I find a solution. But I think that, you know, having now had a couple of kids of my own and having many friends who have their own kids too, I recognize that there are so many different approaches to, um, I guess, trying to work your way through this whole new baby thing. Um, one of them was like me, where I just asked advice from everybody that I knew who had a kid. But there are so many people who think they're a failure when they ask for help. And I almost now feel like i push myself on people with new kids. How's it going? I'm asking detailed (laughs) questions, you know, and then if they don't answer with any details, I let it go. But, you know, I want people to know that it's so important to realize that you might be going through something that's not normal, that other people Mm -hmm. aren't experiencing. And it's not, it doesn't fall under the umbrella of having a baby is super crappy and you have to struggle through it. It, falls into this other arena of having a baby is super crappy, but there are ways that you can navigate it and make it a little bit better. So, you know, back to that issue of asking for people, I'm, I'm like you, like I want to gather lots of data points, but what I've observed just kind of anecdotally working with people is that there's a lot of shame around what's going on and a perception that they're failing or that no one else is doing this. Like one of the biggest mythologies I think that people have is this whole, oh, my baby sleeps in my bed on my boob all night and no one else is doing this and I can't, I'm ashamed to say it. And and meanwhile, I'm like, you know, I think there's a substantial number of people who are doing this, yes. even with toddlers. And, um, you know, there's no shame. Like, you're not alone. You're probably one of 20% of parents out there who basically are a human pacifier with a kid on the boob all night. And, you know, there's no shame in saying, hey, that that's what we had to do to survive when they were younger for whatever reason. And now they are grown up and we're stuck with it and we want to get out of it. And many, many people get stuck here and it's okay. You know, we got here because it's what we needed to do. You know, it's, you're not alone. Yes. Yeah. So I think that for me, one of the really um, salient features of the precious little sleep, because ideas that, that made me feel comfortable with making changes that I needed to make was just understanding the background of how a baby is transitioning through its own life. So understanding that the zero to three month range is 
just all over the place. You know, you're not depending on a schedule. Things are settling into place. Night is settling into place. Understanding that there's a regression at around four months. Understanding that after that, babies start to form sleep associations. And that that could become the route to why things are difficult moving forward. So you make your own decisions after that, how you want to handle those particular challenges. But for me, understanding why those challenges are developing was really critical. So, you know, I, we talked about this on our, um, we chat all the time over um, Facebook and we were chatting a little bit, you know, between the, the bigger group of admins about, you know, this whole I, general idea of change is hard. And I just wanted to read something that, that Katka mentioned that really hit home with me. Some of those things, uh, changes felt terrifying. It's like bungee jumping. You step into the void not knowing what to expect. You know you'll survive probably, but it's scary as hell. And I remember so clearly facing the evening time when I'm like, oh my gosh, bedtime is coming and I don't know if it's going to be really horrible or if it's going to go okay. And stepping into each night with this sense of paranoia. And what's really important about then me realizing that that becomes my state of being means that a change needs to be made, that I need to do something to, to, that an improvement needs to be made And that after that, you know, you look back and you made that change and it sucked while you were doing it, but now everything is better and you feel this confidence and you feel this comfort moving forward that if you end up with an errant crappy night here or there, it's not, that's not the norm anymore, that there's something else going on. So one of the things I think Ashby, you and I have very much in common, um, uh, is that um, we're very sort of like, sort of like just do it, like, <laughs> like just do it, people. And, um, you know, when people are struggling with change and, you know, we, you know, we work individually with like a lot of families, um, no matter how bad it is. I mean, there are people who are up eight times a night and they're afraid yes. to make a change because they think it'll make it worse. And I'm like, oh, it can't get any worse. Like you're in worse. There's no worse yes. than wor- yes. where you're at. So there, there's no possibility of worse. Um, so, so I, I don't, I don't think this is ideal, but I, I, sometimes I feel myself like, like mildly bullying people where yes. I'm just like, come on, do it. What are you, what are you crazy? You can't keep this up. You know, you have a life to lead. You're going to bed at six o'clock at night because you can't stay awake. Cause you're so tired. Cause you're up all night. Come on. Like, so I'm not advocating for like gentle parental bullying, but I have to admit, I think that's kind of what you and I do a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. Sometimes the answer is you need to make a change and you need to make it tonight. Not once teething is over, once there's no separation anxiety, which, by the way, doesn't happen until they're adults and maybe not even then. You know, there's always going to be something. And so the time to make a change is tonight. I mean, unless your child has a high fever tonight. But the 10 to 15 wakings that we see sometimes, it's not sustainable. No. And I, I also see a lot of people afraid to make a change because they're afraid it will wake an older sibling. Mm-hmm. And of course, nobody mm-hmm. wants to add toddler wakings onto baby wakings. Uh, but I sometimes think, you know, you add white noise to the toddler's room and, and really it's no pain, no gain at that point. You might have to endure a few bad nights, but the number of wakings that people are sometimes dealing with, it's not sustainable. It's better to wake the toddler 
you know, but I, but I think for one like, night. You know, if you think about like a therapist, like a therapist helps to gently get people down a path and get them to come to a conclusion. And you and I are just like, just do it already. Come on, let's do this. Yeah. And I mean, to an extent, I, I also recognize that when people are extremely sleep deprived, really not having any complete sleep cycles at night, I think their brains are not working. I mean, they're not firing on all cylinders. They're hi- hypervigilant, parano- paranoid. I mean, these are real effects of sleep deprivation. So it's not the kind of thing where you can necessarily gently and rationally talk someone into it. You have to kind of speak their language because they will feel better once they sleep better. It, it won't look so scary on the other end. It's easier for us to connect the dots logically because we're not tired anymore. Right. <laughs> like now Absolutely. we're all sleeping. So I wanted to mention that one thing I think is so valuable about the Facebook group is just giving parents the confidence that other people are, have gone through this and this is how they navigated it. So I wanted to mention that on more than one occasion, on so many occasions, someone will join the group and their first post will be something like, oh, nursing three times a night, how lovely. And, you know, these moments with your precious infant that aren't going to last forever and I cherish every moment. And within a couple of months, having gained the confidence from the group that they can wean some of those night feedings, now they're down to one or maybe even none. And they're, you know, posting to the forum, you know, I'm thinking of weaning my baby finally. It's bittersweet, but oh my God, I would never go back to those early yeah. days. And, and just so it's, listeners know what we're referring to, this is the uh, Precious Little Sleep Facebook group um, mm-hmm. that Elizabeth is referencing. Right. So I think just, you know, having this big network of people, they're not all, all going to navigate the changes the same way that you do. They're not going to take the same approach, but they're all really aiming for the same thing. We're all aiming for the same thing. Happy, healthy children who can sleep through the entire night at a a very minimum. So I think we could, let's talk about some of the other changes that happen. We talked a little bit about infancy Um, going forward. I think starting around six months, you might start thinking about independent sleep that might happen earlier for some people. um, If there's a particular challenge or if um, I actually think of it as um, you're helping your baby sleep. But ultimately, you're kind of doing this for yourself, right? Because you need to be the best parent you can be for your child. And if you can't be that person because you're up all night with your baby, you're not doing anybody any favors, right? So you kind of you think it's, it's this weird situation where you feel like you're being selfish making them sleep through the night. And in some ways you are because you need that rest too. But in in so many ways you're really doing this for the health of your own family so whatever whatever you need to tell yourself to make that change that okay now you're ready for um, your baby's independent sleep then the pls website is such a great resource a place to start and we'll you know in a future um, podcast here we'll talk about you know how to do that first you know getting baby to fall asleep on their own And after that, you're going to go into, you know, probably the first um, night feed weaning. I I think of that as the next um, big change that needs to be made after baby's falling asleep independently. Well, I mean, you mentioned moving them into their own room. That's that's a big change. So the AAP Mm -hmm. recommends having your child safely sleep in your room for six months um, because it's been linked to a lower incidence of SIDS. 
I really struggled to get Duncan out of our bedroom. Like he was noisy and it woke me up a lot. And I definitely knew that him being present with me was not helping me sleep. I also obsessively checked his breathing all night. <laughs> like, I don't know what a healthy amount of breathing checking is, but I'm pretty sure I did double whatever a healthy amount would be. So it was, it was very anxiety inducing for me to move him out of the bedroom because I wouldn't be able to roll over and check his breathing every 45 minutes like a crazy person that I was doing. Um, but I will say that once I, we took the plunge, which, you know, uh, relocating the crib was a huge production. So there was no backtracking. Like once, once he was out, he was out for good. Um, we all slept so much better. And I was, you know, it was scary, but I was so relieved because I wasn't waking up constantly every time he, you know, grumped or farted. Yeah. And uh, so it was very hard, but well worth it. <laughs> I, I wanted to add that, you know, I think a general rule of thumb when you're making changes is to change one thing let it ride or play out for about four days and see what happens with the exception of that. For me, anyway, with the exception of that first falling asleep independently. So at six months, this is my, with my second, my memories are a lot clearer with the second than the first. Um, I said, okay, six months, we're moving out of the bedroom and the co-sleeper. We did the same thing. I'm getting rid of the swaddle because she's rolling now. And I'm going to stop nursing to sleep and stop the pacifier. I did all those things at the same time. And that worked well. And I think that works okay at around age six months and, you know, doing the whole independent sleep thing. But then after that's established, when you're making changes to uh, any kind of bedtime or middle of the night routine, I get the sense that changing one thing, seeing how that works for four days, and if it's not working, try something different. And then my sense that after that first big hurdle, making one change at a time is is better. I don't know what your experiences have been. Ashby, did you have any scary changes? I mean, you sound so confident. Was there ever a moment where you're like, ugh, like I know we need to do something, but I'm scared to do it? You know, to be honest, I don't know. This may um, be a difference between me and a lot of the moms we talk to. But, you know, for me, I had – he was a terrible sleeper in the beginning of his life. But – I was ready to make any change that uh, was suggested to me. I, I, there was no, not a whole lot of hemming and hawing. So, I mean, you know, if somebody says, try the swing, I was like, all right, we're trying like the anything swing. Anything that's going to make it better. Great. Anything that's going to make it better. And it did make it better. And I guess I never, I, I also didn't experience, I never really felt like a failure for that reason. I mean, I felt like, well, he's sleeping terribly, you know, I want to fix it. I didn't feel like it was my fault. I mean, that's how he came out. <laughs> that's a great attitude. That is how they come out. I don't know why we internalize it. It is. That. Yeah. <laughs> I think largely because we don't have a lot of experience with babies. I mean, I think if you are, you know, the oldest Duggar child, you probably have, you know, a, a more experience and you would know and know what to expect. And that's probably why uh, that one girl doesn't have any kids of her own now. So. I think I felt like we were just hanging on by a thread. And so I was afraid of any change because I'm like, I can't handle anything getting worse. Like, it's so bad. Like, yes. I'm just barely making it. If one more disruption gets mucked in there, I can't. I'm going to just fall to pieces. So that was my fear was yes, my last absolutely. thread being cut into two. And then no. Um, there are really small things I think you need to think about, too, when it comes to these baby sleep things. Like, people will say... They got themselves into this weird position. Do I need to change yes, that? Their yes. diaper is, you know, wet or full or 
you know, in some cases, poopy, like, do I, I need to wake them up and change them. And I think you sometimes just have to say, okay, there are things that you can do and should do and cover the basic needs. And then there are things you should just let go. And that's such an important part of it is just let it go. And I think coming into talking about some of what are some of the other changes, uh, first thing you do with a baby uh, or baby first would be like travel, you know, Mm -hmm. you're traveling with your baby. You've set this wonderful routine. You're like wanting it all to work when you're traveling. And I just got to say some, when you're traveling, some things you just have to let it go, you know, hope that your baby sticks to routine, but if they don't, they, they, they don't, you know, you you try, but some things you just have to roll with, you know, I don't know. However, some things can get bad, but, but in terms of little things, you know, little, definitely little things, just let go of those little things. You know, in terms of travel being a scary change, I feel like you should accept that it's going to go poorly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yes. go it, it's going to go bad. And that is a change we are willing to accept because the mental health benefits of the travel make it worth it. And to me, if yeah. the mental health benefits of the travel are not going to be worth it, then don't go. You know, I think the first time I flew alone with my younger one, um, you know, we're on the plane, he didn't nap at all, you know, and you just, I was so reliant on that nursing to sleep at around three months or whatever it was, and he didn't nap at all. And I was just freaking out, you know, internally. I mean, I try not to do externally too much, though I do. Your fellow Um, passengers appreciated that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But but I, you know, at some moment it was clear to me this wasn't going to happen. And, you know, the flight is only, you know, half an hour longer at this point anyway. So, um, you know, let's just look at the airplane magazine and tear some pages out or something like that. And, and, you know, everybody around you is saying things like, oh, don't worry, you know, you'll fall asleep in the car and like nobody's supposed to be napping right now. Um, and lo and behold, you know, we got in the car and he fell asleep instantly. And so those are the kinds of little things that feel like a big thing at the time, but you have to kind of let go of. Another big thing, um, you know, that comes up often is uh, your child starting daycare for the first time. And that's obviously a big thing. You've set this, maybe had enough time to set up a routine at home and are hoping that it's going to be followed at daycare. And, you know, guess what? The, the setup is different there. And that's another thing in some ways you have to just let go of. You know, you work with the child care worker as much as you can. If you found a place that you think is happy and healthy for your child, you choose that place and the other parameters are largely out of your control. And so in in that particular change, a lot of it is just yourself, how you deal with it. But I think in terms of daycare, the other changes. which is almost more important than kind of relinquishing control of sleep is the fact that you are, you're, you're entrusting your most beloved person into the care of someone who is not you typically for the first time for most of us. It's the, you know, daycare is the first time it's not been you or a partner or an in-law, you know? And, um, I, I, first of all, I think that is a massively scary change, maybe scarier than any of the other changes we're talking about. Uh, because it relies on a on a level of trust with someone who you know you probably have only spent like an hour with, right? I mean, like how long you with these people? And um, the other thing I wanted to throw out is 
and again, I'm not trying to be like the huge bummer, but I think it's natural and okay to expect that it's there's going to be hard feelings. I know the first time we tried to put Duncan in daycare, I like cried in the car for like a half an hour. And it wasn't like a gentle, delicate, like princess in the movie cry. It was an ugly cry. And I thought, boy, I'm really glad this is not my first day of work. Like, I'm glad I'm not like <laughs> dropping him off and then showing up at the office and I'm all like red and puffy and like, you know. So, and I'm not trying to say that to be depressing, but to say, you know, it's okay to acknowledge this is a big change and you ideally give yourself some time and some space to process that and get get a little more comfortable if you can afford it starting daycare a week or two early maybe part-time so you can sort of ease into it and get through it I, I think is is helpful you know so I think that you make a really good point and I think we're kind of coming up on you know our 30 minute time slot here so I was think, thinking of some thoughts to wrap this up the idea of you know change is hard it's just really hard and these the, the decisions that you're making now with your baby just feel really big. And part of it is because you yourself, you know, are, are operating on a, on a knife's edge. It feels that way sometimes. So you feel like there's so much hope. There's also so much potential for failure. If you can rewire the way you think, if you can think positively about this, this change is necessary. That after you implement this change, things are going to be better that during the time you have to make the change, things are going to be bad for a while, but it's going to take a few days. And on the other side, it's going to be better. Then you can uh, build up this confidence going into it. I think that's a really good thing. And hearkening back to what Alexis said earlier, think about your worst case scenario. What's the absolute worst thing that can happen? Right? Are you, you know, your situation is kind of crappy right now. Could it be getting any worse? I want to say in a lot of cases, probably not. But let's say it gets worse. Can you handle it? Will you be okay? And hopefully the answer is yes. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I think that's basically how I make most life decisions <laughs> is the worst case analysis. Like, well, you know, uh, what if my book is really awful and everyone hates it? I will be embarrassed and I will um, take it off the market and we will never speak of it again. Uh, will I survive? Yes, we can survive that. Um, I think especially for changes around nighttime sleep and bedtime, it's very, very scary. And the question I always have is, is your child safe and is your child loved? Yes. Yes. Well, great. So the worst case scenario is you have a safe, loved child who is unhappy, who doesn't sleep well. Okay. But they're safe and they're loved. So that we can live with. Mm -hmm. Um, So in future episodes, we'll, we'll talk about some of the topics we brought up today, like starting daycare, how to navigate that first time traveling with your baby, maybe first time overnight visit somewhere, removing sleep tools um, like the swaddle and the pacifier, other things that are not necessarily sleep related, like when and how to start foods, things like that. So we'll talk about those topics and more in future uh, podcasts. Hopefully with this one, you've gotten a sense um, of fortification that if you've got Uh, some, if you sense a big change coming up, fortification that you can handle it, you can move forward. So thanks for listening today. And we'll see you again in a future podcast. If you've got any comments or questions on this podcast, you can go to the website, www.preciouslittlesleep.com under the menu item podcast. 
We're always open for suggestions and ideas for future podcast topics. We've got a lot of exciting things planned around sleep and parenting and nursing and interviews with top authors, lots of exciting stuff. If you have a moment, please go to iTunes.com and subscribe to our podcast. And additionally, a positive review would be great. Positive reviews on iTunes are like a warm hug, and we love warm hugs. 